Welcome to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. I'm Renee Frazier, happy to be here to talk about interesting people and direction for women as we lead and succeed. The Why Women Show is an opportunity to interview powerful, successful women, and to understand better their own backstory, their psychology, the guidance they might give to others who want to follow in their path. As Renee Fraser, I own and have started an ad agency called Fraser Communications. It's one of the largest woman-owned and woman-led in Southern California. We do advertising and marketing that is purpose-driven. Our messages are to improve the world, make the world a better place. And our very diverse team works on things such as messaging around uh, Lead paint and why it's bad for children, remediation program throughout the state of California. The fact that talking, reading, and singing to your children will make a difference in their future and their educational outcomes. And we also do a lot of work on cessation of smoking, celebrating the quitters, and many, many other campaigns you can find at our website, FraserCommunications.com. But the purpose of our show is really to inspire women and men from the perspective of other women, what they've accomplished and how they They've accomplished it. Today, I have a renowned author of historical fiction, Lisa C. Uh, Lisa has uh, done some, um, written some amazing novels. She's a New York Times bestselling author, and she has a new book coming out, Lady Tan's Circle of Women. Lisa is the author of many successful books, and um, we're going to learn more about what it took and why she creates those books. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me, Renee. Lisa, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to talk about your books. I've read several of them. I'm looking forward to reading the Lady Chan Circle of Women. But before we get into the novels themselves, I'd like you to give us your story, how you became a writer, and your focus on Chinese stories as a Chinese-American. Yes, so... Um... Actually, my mother was a writer. My mother's father was a writer. I actually kind of resisted becoming a writer. You know, I wasn't one of those people who, when I was five, thought, I want to grow up to be a writer. I was looking at these other people in the family and thinking, no, I don't want to do that. Um, But there did come a point, I, I had gone to college, I had gone two years, and I thought, this is not for me. I'd been saving up money, and I went to Europe. Um, this was back when you could do it on $5 a day or less, and I was definitely in the or less category, and I was just bumming around in Europe, and I thought I knew certain things about myself, that I don't want to get married, I don't want to have kids, I, I don't want to be a writer, and I always want to live out of a suitcase, <laughs> and of course, there's one big problem with that. How do you support yourself? Right, right. <laughs> and so I just kept thinking about that and thinking about that, and there came a point I was living in Greece in a little house right on the water for $35 a month. Oh, my goodness. And um, one morning I woke up and it truly was like a light bulb went off, like, oh, I could become a writer. (laughs) And it was many months before I came back home. But within the first 48 hours, I had my first two magazine assignments. They had come through my mother, who, like I said, was a writer, Mm -hmm. Carolyn C. And I've been writing ever since. Now, of course, I didn't know myself very well back when I was 19, because I did get married, I do have children, I did become a writer. (laughs) Um, I, I don't 
travel as much as I used to, but I could say that the, you know, I did get to a point where the bloom was kind of off that rose. So, you know, you grow up, you change, and you learn some things along the way. I think that's that's good for all of us to hear, right? You you seem, especially I think when we're young, we're very earnest, right? I know what I can do. I know what I want in life. But things happen that make you reflect and sometimes change. Uh, you know, being a journalist, a writer, were you doing travel writing? Were you writing stories on lifestyle and people? What was the content? You know, those first two articles, one was on a woman who at that time held the woman's record in the woman's marathon, yeah. uh, Jacqueline Hansen. And the other one, oddly enough, was about birth, birth control on the college campus. Oh, interesting. So I, I did a lot of work for TV Guide back in those early years, doing profiles of you know, actors on television, on subjects like how do they make the food look good in television commercials? How do they train the animals for television shows? All kinds of things uh, like that. Re really just working as a freelance journalist. And then at some point, I was hired by Publishers Weekly, which is the trade journal of the publishing industry to cover everything in publishing west of the Mississippi. Oh boy. So I had a very large territory. Right. And I worked for them for 14 years. Oh my goodness. Now what what made you turn to novels and writing your own stories? Fiction. Right. So actually I had collaborated with my mother and John Espy on three books under the name of Monica Highland. Oh. Two of them were historical novels and one was a coffee table book uh, that was a collection of old Southern California postcards. Oh. So we, we um, had a lot of fun doing those. But uh, like I said, I was working for Publishers Weekly and they're just, um, I, I started working on my first book on Gold Mountain, which tells the story of the Chinese in America through the eyes of my family that was here in Los Angeles. And right as I got to the end of that book, there were two things that happened kind of simultaneously. I had just gotten to the end of On Gold Mountain, had turned it in, and the editor called one day and said, I've been thinking uh, this book ends in 1957, and I'm kind of curious about what happened to your family all the way up until today, <laughs> and what is it like for Chinese immigrants now? And again, this is like 20-some years ago. Right that week, there was a ship that had drifted into U.S. territorial waters off the coast of San Diego, oh. carrying about 300 illegal Chinese immigrants. And um, that was a way to talk about what it was like for Chinese immigrants right at that time in 1995. And then the other thing that had happened was that my husband, who's an attorney, was representing the country of China um, hmm. when they had legal difficulties here in the United States. So he had this one case that uh, it doesn't, the de details don't really matter, but we were traveling back and forth to China quite a bit, and he was spending a lot of time with um, these agents in the Ministry of Public Security, which is China's version of the FBI. Uh -huh. And there was this night where things kind of clicked in 
to my head and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the best material right. and I've got it. Right, and right. You're living it. I took, yeah, and I took those two ideas of, um, you know, this ship coming into U.S. territorial waters and everything that I was learning when we were in China with these agents. And that became the first of the mysteries that I wrote. I um, love it. Flower Net. Yeah, I love it, Lisa. You know, what I, what I want the listeners to realize is sometimes opportunities come to you and you don't even realize it, right? And uh, in the sense that it's an opportunity in your life and you're seeing things that you don't realize you can turn into, in your case, novels and, uh, and amazing stories, which is wonderful. Now, I think by background, we should explain to everyone, uh, you are one-eighth Chinese, is that correct? That's right. And because if they come to any of your book readings with the new book coming out, we'll talk about those in a moment. You have red hair and I don't remember, is it blue eyes? (laughs) Yeah. Yes, I don't look very Chinese. I've been told that on more than one occasion. That's all right. But I did grow up in a very large Chinese-American family here in Los Angeles. My uh, great-great-grandfather came to work on the building of the Transcontinental Railroad. His son, my great-grandfather, uh, came to Los Angeles with his white wife uh, in 1897. Oh, my. And um, this was back when it was against the law for Chinese and white people to marry. Um, they went to a lawyer who drew up a contract between two people as though they were forming a partnership. Oh, my. My grandparents went to Mexico to get married, and my own parents were only the second couple in our whole extended family to be legally married here in the United States. Oh, my goodness, so, Lisa. Anyway. Wow, what a great story, though. I didn't realize. Uh, I yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, but um, you've clearly been a part of a Chinese family for many, many, many years. And spending, do you spend time in China still? I do, but not the last three years. No, unfortunately, with what's happened with COVID and the other issues, I can understand. Well, what a fascinating background. And On Golden Mountain is an an amazing story. How fortunate that the publisher said, tell us more, right? And you've got so many stories that you've talked about. I want to talk about your ability to create these stories and the amount of research that you're you're doing so that our listeners can understand it isn't necessarily just coming with it, coming from the top of your head and your own personal experience, but diving deep into what's going on in the culture and what are the trends. I saw that very clearly in The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, and I suspect there's also a part of that in Lady Tan's Circle of Women. So we're going to take a break to listen to news and traffic. I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women? And we're talking to a marvelous, renowned author of historical fiction novels and a New York Times bestselling author, Lisa C., and she'll be telling us more about how she gains the insights for her stories, as well as, uh, you know, what does it really mean to be a writer, the kind of work that it takes? So we'll all learn. I think many of us have thought about writing our own novels. We'll hear from Lisa C. how much work it takes. Stay tuned for the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. Welcome back to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. And 
We call this show Why Women because why women are successful, why women lead, why women think in ways that you might not expect. We have a wonderful, renowned author on our show, Lisa C. And Lisa has written some amazing novels. Uh, Lisa, welcome back to the show. Yes. Happy to be here. Well, I'm going to ask Lisa to talk a little bit about how she creates the stories that seem so real. I uh, There's a new book coming out, Lady Tan, Circle of Women, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. I'm anxious to talk about what the, the content is. The, the book I read recently was The Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, and I have to say I was fascinated by it. It, it, uh, it seems so very real to me, and I, I found a quote that I thought really speaks to the work that you do. It's the LA Times critic David Ulan who said, she has a sense of fiction, uh, and we have a belief that fiction is just made up, and certainly invention is part of it, he said. But the most resonant fiction, and he was speaking of Lisa's work, certainly the most resonant naturalistic fiction has to take place in a recognizable world, and a recognizable landscape. And I think that adds to the texture of the world she's creating. It's not a superficial world. It's steeped with context and reality. Those are my words. Lisa, can you talk about that in terms of how you how you develop your stories and, and what that really means, this legitimate, authentic context you create? Yes, and I actually want to go back to something you said in the very first segment about how things um, sometimes fall in your lap or you, you don't really know when one door closes and another one opens where that's going to lead. I sometimes think about that as like fate, fortune, destiny. What I have found with these books that I've been writing is that um, there are things that kind of fall into my lap hmm. or cross, uh, you know, come across my field of vision that just change how I see the world, but also make me focus in on a subject. And so, for example, with the island of, with, um, the Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, which you just mentioned, I had been thinking about writing about the one child policy and adoption from China for something like 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't have my way into the story, but I, it had been in the back of my mind. I'd been quietly collecting material, uh, but I just, again, didn't have my way in. And there came an evening when my husband and I were going to the movies in Santa Monica. We were crossing the street and in the sidewalk, you know, just ahead of us was an older white couple walking with their adopted teenage Chinese daughter between them. Hmm. And she had her hair up in a ponytail and it was swishing back and forth. Hmm. And I had this vision of her as being kind of like a fox spirit in her family hmm. in Chinese tradition, fox spirits can be very naughty. They can be very mischievous. <laughs> they are kind of supernatural. You know, they're always up to naughty things. That's all I can say. Okay. But in their best moments, they have this ability to bring, bring great love and to create families. And so when I saw her foxtail swishing back and forth, I thought, well, yes, she is like a fox spirit in uh, that family. Well. That through her presence, she brought great love and it helped to create a family so truly from one side of the sidewalk to the other I knew what the next book was going to be and I had my way in wow and so once that happens you know then I begin the research and I love to do research it's my favorite part of the whole 
process of writing. I never know what I'm going to find. I look at it like a big treasure hunt. Hmm. And it's those things that I find that start to open up other parts of the story. But again, I think often there are things that I've been thinking about that now all of a sudden they start to almost like fall out of the sky oh my. You know, into huh. my lap. Uh-huh. Uh, I think of it a little bit like when I got my very first car was a green Toyota Corolla. And all of a sudden, everywhere I drove, I right. saw other green right. Toyota Corollas. Right. I'm sure other people have had that same experience. It's right. like once you focus in on something, yes, what you need starts to pop up around you. Exactly right. You know, we, we actually, as a psychologist, I can say that's called selective perception. And uh, that does happen to all of us. Something you're, you've purchased or you're intending to buy, then suddenly you see them all around you. But the other phenomenon you're talking about that I've talked about a lot on this show is when your mind focuses on something that you want or you need and you verbalize it, as we say, put it out in the universe, serendipitously, things align and come together that may bring you information. Uh, and I'm, I'm delighted to... To, to hear that that was that is part of your process, you know, just for the audience, the the tea girl of Hummingbird Lane, and correct me of course if I make mistakes. It was probably over a year ago that I read the book, but she uh, lives in a, 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 a much lo- a longer time ago that the, she has a child, and it turns out to be the the fox spirit you just referenced, Elisa. But the woman is a part of a, a group of people uh, collecting tea that's very very rare and a very special place did you did you how did you learn about the chi at that area uh, yuhan I'm, i don't i probably won't pronounce it correctly can you give us kind of the understory behind all of that yes so i mentioned how i'd been thinking about the one child policy and adoption from china well i write historical novels that's not terribly historical <laughs> but I didn't worry about it too much. I just kept doing the research that I could. And then I gave a talk at a library down in Carlsbad. And this was a huge event where they had brought in someone else to be like the opening act. And he was a um, tea expert. And he started talking about how, you know, tea is the second most popular drink uh-huh. in the world after water, uh, the difference between tea shrubs and tea trees. And then he mentioned this one tea called puer that is the only tea that grows in value with age, Mm. kind of like wine. And right at that time, there was a single cake of puer that had sold at international auction a little under a pound for over 150,000 US dollars. Oh my goodness. And when I heard that, I knew what the historic backdrop was going to be. <laughs> and just as you were saying, the the what, what did you say? Selective perception? Yes, yeah, selective perception. Uh-huh. All of a sudden, things started to happen around me. Um, my husband was at a board meeting and someone said, what's Lisa working on? And he was like, something about tea. <laughs> and this man said, oh, I was just at a dinner with with a woman who's the largest importer of puer into the United States. Would Lisa like to meet her? Oh, <laughs> I was like, yes, wow. I would. Wow! And um, I went uh, when I met with her. She she didn't speak very much English. We met at a whole other woman's house, and we drank tea all day. And 
They taught me a lot. And at the end of the day, I asked Linda Louie, who's the owner of the Banati company, who, who was our host that day, um, you know, is there any one, I'm going to Yunnan in the spring for tea picking season. Is there anyone you think I should meet anywhere you think I should go? And she said, well, I'm going for tea picking season. Why don't you just come with me? <laughs> Wonderful. And so although I had known her for all of about six hours, a month later, we were on a, on a plane together. And of course, the main part of the research for that book was actually being in the tea mountains of Hunan and meeting with farmers and um, tea growers and processors and dealers and, mm. and then drinking just cup after cup after cup of tea. <laughs> well, you know, the book, uh, just so the the listeners are, are understanding it, it gives you a sense of the culture, the way the family lives, the difficulties girls have uh, in the culture, not being able to have a baby uh, and having to uh, either kill the baby or in this case to put the baby into uh, someone else's hands for adoption uh, in a very secret way but it, it was it's it was like taking a, a step back in history and of course historical fiction but I, th I think of a lot of historical fiction being written around a famous person you know so that mm -hmm. you understand the writing of the you know Declaration of Independence and the other issues whereas you take people into the lifestyle and the context of their lives the values the choices they're making as people but it's real it's not fictional in the sense of uh, it's uh, totally made up. You're, you're really basing it in, in the traditions that, and the history that you were able to absorb. Uh, I admire that so much. Uh, it must be fascinating to you, for you. And, and how do you even determine what do I use, what I don't use? Does it somehow flow? Well, can I actually go back to something you just said about um, historical fiction being about famous people? You know, I have been really interested in stories about women mm -hmm. that have been lost, forgotten, deliberately covered up. And so often we, you know, main, well, let me start over. We tend to learn history in terms of what I think of as the front line of history, wars, dates, right. presidents, prime ministers, generals. But if you take one step back, who's there? It's women, it's children, it's families. And they're there every single step of the way. And then the other piece of that is that we tend to you know, say, oh, you know, there were no women writers, there were no women artists, there were no women historians, there were no women right. filling in the blank. But of course there were. There were. That's and right. they were doing extraordinary things. And so that's what I've been trying to do with these historical novels is find these stories about women that, again, have been lost, forgotten, deliberately covered up. These extraordinary women who did extraordinary things. I love this, Lisa. Um, we're, we're ending uh, our segment. We're going to go talk about that more. You're listening to the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women? And you're listening to Lisa C., a renowned author who brings extraordinary women to light. Stay tuned for more. This is the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. I'm Renee Frazier. Welcome back. We're talking with 
uh, a renowned author, a New York Times bestselling author, Lisa C. She's got a new book coming out. It's out now, Lady Chan's Circle of Women. But Lisa was talking to us about how she writes her novels and the research that she does. And as you all know, as listeners, I, I, I try to unwrap things in this show that we can all be inspired. And many of you may have thought about writing yourself a story about your family or about background. And historical fiction is a wonderful way to be able to drill down into the culture, to the values, to people, and understand what their lives were like. Lisa was just mentioning that a lot of history is about the front line of history, as you said, Lisa. But you're talking about women that are below the surface, maybe not on the on the on the historical pages because of cultural reasons, but who who brought a lot into the uh, to the culture, race, families, obviously did remarkable things. I was asking, though, also about the stories, how you come upon the story when you do the research, as you mentioned in Hunan, looking at the tea picking, understanding it all. How do you determine what goes into a story and what does not? Well, this is something I hate to admit in a way, but in the first draft, I include everything that I've found. Uh-huh. <clears throat> you know, I, I feel like I found it. I've got to use I've it. I've got to share it. Right. Yeah. And then as I edit, I start to pull stuff out. Uh-huh. And I think of it kind of like um, that game Jenga. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you have that tower and you start to pull out the pieces. You want the structure to still be there for it to still stand. But you don't need every single detail. So I don't want people to be reading and then have no stop. And here's the history lesson. Mm -hmm. Now you read a little pot. Now you stop. I I just want people to feel like they're in the room with these characters, that they're side by side with the characters. And so that that actually requires the reader to, um, you know, exercise their own imagination. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because you're, you're letting them know and, and be in the room, but that they get to fill in a little bit around around them. And um, nevertheless, I found all that stuff. I love it. And yeah. so I do have on my website for each of the books, a section called Step Inside um, the Tea Girls, Step Inside Sea Women, Step Inside Snowflower, where I have, um, you know, photographs, videos, maps, um, all kinds of background material for that particular book. So that if people are interested in, you know, if, with Tea Girl of Hummingbird Lane, if they want to learn more about tea, if they want to learn more about the Aka ethnic minority, right. it's all there in one right. place. That's great. I, I think it's wonderful that you share that, Elisa. And I, what I, I like about this notion of stepping inside, you do feel as if uh, you're connecting with the people. And, and not just the main character. We all want to you know, connect with the hero, if you will, or the protagonist. Right. But I think in the case of, of your books, you, you feel what their life is like and the choices they have to make and the emotions that they're feeling. And, of course, great fiction. That's it. You, you, you're immersed in the story, which is wonderful. Uh, and I, I'm, I like that 
the fact that you shared your right so much of it and then you have to pare it down because I think a lot of us who've tried to write is like, well, this is way too much and, oh, I don't know how my, where I'm going to cut, et cetera. But your, your analogy to Jenga is not bad. It's like the idea of taking things out to lessen it. Uh, it's sometimes hard to do that, right, to edit our own material. But it's an important way to get to the kernels that are going to be the greatest connectors and create the emotional work. I, I will just la- uh, mention one other thing with the uh, Chi Girl of Hummingbird Lane. She, uh, the, the uh, family that adopts the girl is living in Pasadena, and you reference some of the Pasadena folks that we know, you know, East West Bank and Dominic Ng mm-hmm. and, and some of the restaurants and things. And it's fun because it's, it's, it comes alive right there for people who've been, you know, who live in this area. So another, another way of making it, you know, connect to real life events. And of course I have several family friends who are several friends who have Chinese born children in their families. They love them. And you also dealt, dealt with some of the issues. Does the girl feel Chinese? Does she feel American? And, uh, you know, uh, her need. I won't uh, yeah, I, you ruin know, the story. I, was so for lucky. I mean, I, like you, I know a lot of people who have adopted daughters mm-hmm. from China. I have people in my own family who've adopted from China. But I also wanted to get a sense of what it was like for girls, not in a city like Los Angeles, yes, but out there in the middle of the country and other parts of the country. And what was their experience like? Because maybe they were born in a family or you know, raised in a family where they were the only Chinese face in their family, in their class, in their school, in their church, in their synagogue at the county fair. And so I ended up interviewing young women, sort of 18 to about 21, um, old enough to have some real thoughts about their experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed them all over the country. Wow. And I had prepared a, a list of about a dozen questions, and I couldn't interview everyone in person, but I would send out these questions, and I didn't expect much because they were in college, they were, um, you know, many of them had jobs as well, but what I got back were these letters 30 to 50 pages long. Oh, my goodness. Of these young women just opening their hearts and sharing their experiences with me. So you know that chapter where there's the it's like a transcript of a group therapy session yes. with the five five girls who've been adopted from China, and uh, you know I created the doctor, I created those five girls, I had control over the conversation. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, but a good part of that, I'd say about fifty percent of that chapter. I just cut and pasted from the letters that those girls wrote to me because what they could say in their own words about their own experiences was far more powerful than anything I could make up. Wonderful. Yeah, and it, it is it really worth reading. I'm, I hope many of the listeners will say, I've got to pick that book up. It's, uh, it, uh, it, it stayed with me in so many ways. But let's talk about the new book, uh, Lady Jan's Circle of, of Women. Tell us what's the origin of that story and, uh, uh, and, and unwrap for us what, what we can look for in this new book. Yes. So um, the beginning of the pandemic, I thought I knew what the new book was going to be. It was something I'd been thinking about for many, many, many years, uh, like I do with most of them. However, there was one small catch that was going to require a trip deep, deep, deep into a very remote part of China. And obviously, there was no way I could go in 2020. 
And I, I have to say, I spent a good part of that year kind of moping around in my house, uh, you know, in lockdown, like everybody else. Mm, least, we all did. Right. Know, yeah. Except that unless you were an essential worker, it turns out writers are not essential. <laughs> anyway, I was <laughs> passing by my bookcase in my office where I have all my research materials and the spine of one of the books kind of popped out at me one day. And I don't know why gray was slightly darker gray lettering, but I pulled it down, reproducing women, pregnancy and childbirth in the Ming dynasty. Hmm. I thought, well, I'd, I'd had the book on my shelf for 10 years. I'd never opened it. I'm going to read it right now. Hmm. And I started to read. And on page 19, there was a mention of a woman doctor in the Ming dynasty, Tan Yanshan, who, when she turned 50 in 1511, published a book of her cases. Hmm. So I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I'm going to go to the computer and look her up. It turns out that that book is not only still in print in, in China, it's in print in here in the United States and around the world. I oh. ordered it. I had it within 24 hours. Wow. And so while I usually think about books for years, this one, it was all of 26 hours. Wow. Um, this woman was extraordinary. She um, was trained by her grandparents who were doctors. She was an elite woman from a very elite family of, of many generations of imperial scholars. All of her cases were women and girls. Um, it's believed by scholars that these were the women and girls who lived in her husband's family compound. Mm -hmm. um, but there are other cases in there. A woman who holds the tiller on a ship another woman who's a brick and tile maker. How did the real life Tanyan Shun meet these working women if she was a fine, upstanding Confucian woman who was never supposed to leave home? Mm. So uh, one reason her book is still in print is because that many of her remedies are still used in Chinese medicine today. Oh, my goodness. So she was just remarkable. Um, this is the first time, actually, that I have written a historical novel based on a real person. A real person. Let me, we're going to, we're going to have to wrap up this segment in just a moment, go to news and traffic. Let me ask the question, though, I bet a lot of our listeners are asking, is she Lady Chan in the book? Yes, she is. <gasps> ah, wonderful. So she's based on a real person historically and amazing, it sounds like, with her work in terms of uh, uh, her medications. And uh, so many of us understand the value of integrative medicine, right, herbal medicine and others. I want to learn more about what she was able to do in this wonderful circle of women. We're talking with Lisa C., a best-selling New York Times best-selling author, and her new book that's coming out, Lady Chan's Circle of Women. Stay tuned and we'll learn more about the research that went into this book and why we should read it. Listen to news and, uh, and traffic and join us back on the Dr. Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. Welcome back. This is Renee Frazier, and the show is called Why Women, and we love to learn why women are successful, how they lead, and, and the secrets to their accomplishments. 
not just in terms of what they produce, but also happiness. And I have a wonderful woman on the show, Lisa C., who is an American writer and novelist, uh, uh, a New York Times bestselling author, who's written a book called, a recent book called Lady Chan, Circle of Women. And we're talking about this wonderful story. As you may have heard in the earlier segments, Lisa's stories bring extraordinary women forward. So you really understand their lives and see the courage they exhibit. Uh, for me, it's always inspirational to read her, her wonderful books. But this one in particular, I'm looking forward to because it's about a real character. You were telling us, Lisa, about Lady Chan and uh, part of the Ming Dynasty. Tell me the work you did to understand her and uh, t- take us into that world. Well, I had to do research in a very different way this time. Obviously, I couldn't go to China. Um, all of the research libraries and other archives were completely closed during mm. 2020 mm-hmm. and even into 2021. But I was able to reach out to many scholars around the world on Zoom. And this was completely different for me (laughs) to be interviewing people on Zoom. But I talked to a professor at Harvard who was extraordinarily helpful, a professor down at UC Irvine. And, you know, I might have a question like, did mail exist in you know, the 14, late 1400s, how did you mail a letter? Or could you even mail a letter mm-hmm. in China at that time? And how did it work? And it turns out there's somebody who wrote his dissertation on that. Um, and, and so these are kind of esoteric things, but there are people who've spent their entire careers doing research right. on, on those kinds of things. And they're really excited to talk to someone <laughs> and tell them about, <laughs> right, to share about it. their life's yeah, work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So but, that that was very different for me this time. And I would say one of the things that was also different with this book was that real life or contemporary life kept kind of, you know, this was not intended, but kept influencing the book or was more like it was running parallel to the book. So here we were in the pandemic. Well, in China at that time, um, they would have smallpox epidemics every three years. Mm. And China invented something called variolation. It was the very first form of vaccination. And all of the issues that we've heard about vaccination, you know, over the last three years, they were talking about in the 15, you know, late 1400s, 1500s in China about should you give variolation to people or not? Is variolation and, a small amount of the virus? Yes. Okay. Yes. Variolation. Take, like a smallpox okay. scab and grind it up and then blow it into your nose. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> not, so not that's how they... That got it into your body. Wow. Yeah, that's how they got it into your body. Or Hmm. they would take an old scab and sort of put it in your nose, in your nose with a a little bit of cotton and keep it in there. Mm -hmm. So it was dangerous. I mean, it really was dangerous. It could protect you, but it could also, you could get sick, you could get some scarring, you could die. So a lot of the the th- the issues that we have heard over the last you know few years were things that they were talking about. And the other one, because Tan Yanshan's patients were all women and girls, so much of her work had to do with female reproduction. Mm-hmm. And 
I think I can say now with <laughs> some certainty that probably back in caveman days, people were talking about who has control over a woman's body. Yes. We're certainly talking about it in many times, and we're certainly still having that conversation today. And I suspect that when we're all living on Mars, um, their people are still going to be talking about this. So it was really interesting to see the parallels. I mean, I was almost done with the book when the Dobbs decision decision came down. Uh-huh. And it was just it was just so interesting to me to see how um, something that was happening 500 years ago, we're still discussing the same issues today. You know, I have to say, Lisa, I had the opportunity to go to Egypt in February, uh, Cairo and the pyramids uh, down the Nile. And uh, our guide showed us uh, uh, in pyramids hieroglyphics where there were uh uh, obviously medical devices that look very similar to what we use today. And there were tests for pregnancy, tests for the mm-hmm. gender of the child and abortion. Uh, wow. and, and that's 5,000 years ago, four 5,000 right. years ago. But you think about it, these are human issues, right? And uh, sex has been around, obviously, for a long time, and women get pregnant. Uh, and right. uh, young women get pregnant uh, and uh, aren't necessarily prepared to have children. Uh, and so they they have to make choices. In the case of this woman, uh, and this, she was a specialist in dealing with uh, reproduction. She was probably also a midwife. Was she also part of helping to bring she children? Has a- friend in the novel who is a midwife. Uh, One of the interesting things in China at that time was that doctors didn't touch blood. They were concerned with blood, if you think of it with like a capital B, more of a metaphor about how the body operated um, as a system. Whereas midwives were seen as low and dirty because it like like butchers because mm. they touched blood i i thought that was also very interesting the very. other thing at that time was that male doctors could not see their women patients they oh. couldn't be in the same room with them oh. they couldn't touch them oh. but tanya shun she could see her patients she could touch them she could ask them questions and uh, I don't know. So, you know, when these male doctors would be sitting outside, they would send the husband or a son or a father back and forth to the patient asking oh. these very embarrassing questions. questions. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, I don't, you know, I love my husband and my sons dearly, but I would not want them to be the go-between between me <laughs> and my gynecologist, for example. Not at all. Not at all. But that was violating their privacy if a, a doctor went to the women. So I could see how Tanyan Sun then played an important role when she could have access to, to the right. women. And and that's why her work is so extraordinary and why it is still so valuable today is that she did have direct contact with women and girls. What's, what is the uh, English uh, title of her book? And, and or, or... It's called Miscellaneous Records of a Female Doctor. <laughs> Very charming title. Miscellaneous mm-hmm. Records of a Chinese Doctor. Of a female doctor. A female, of a female, of a female doctor. doctor. Yeah. How fascinating. Well, that obviously was the basis of the book. Can you give us any other uh, uh, like uh, titillating uh, ideas for why we should read the story or the arc of the story? Well, I... 
I think in many ways she was a quite modern woman. You know, she was a wife. She was a mother. She ah. had a career. She was experiencing in, you know, the late 1400s, what today we would call issues about work-life balance. <laughs> and again, that's just something that we think of as being modern, yep. contemporary. But it's, and yet yes. I believe that those issues have been around forever for Absolutely. women. Absolutely. A really good point. A good reason for us to, I'm going to, I'm looking forward to reading the book. Uh, let me ask you about promoting your book. I've got two last questions in this last couple of minutes. One is what's the process like for promoting the books? And then secondly, advice you would have for aspiring writers who are trying to break into the industry. But the first one is well, the process. Yeah, I'm yeah. going out on a huge book tour. <laughs> I'm very lucky that I'm at a at a level in my career where they do send me out on big book tours. I'm going to be doing several events here in Southern California, but also all over this country and into Canada. Um, if people are interested, they can look on my website where I have all the events listed. Let's spell um, your name then, out just so they know. It's Lisa, S-E-E. Right. right. And then they could go yeah. to dot com. Lisa C dot com. Super easy to find. Great. And then your other question was about advice. And I really only have two pieces of advice. One is from my mother and it's something that her father did as well. So I'm a third generation writer, which is to write a thousand words a day, uh -huh. which is just four pages. And at the end of a week, you have a chapter. At the end of two weeks, you have two chapters. If you can't write a thousand words, write 500 words. That's just two pages a day. And at the end of the week, you'll have 10 pages. And at the end of two weeks, you'll have a chapter. And if you can just carve out that time for yourself and say, everything else can wait. You know, every this, this has a priority for me. Um, the dishes are going to have to wait. The laundry is going to have to wait. Those errands are going to have to wait. But this is most important. You'll get the work done. And, and you know, it, you just have to put your rear end in the chair and, <laughs> and make that time for yourself. And then the last thing I would say is that you have to be really passionate about what you're doing. I think of writing a book like a um, marriage, you know, this is not a one night stand. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it for life. I mean, we started this conversation talking about a book, you know, on Gold Mountain that came out in 1995. Right. So right. I hope that people who are listening can still hear that I, you know, love that book, that I'm passionate about all of these books publishing has a lot of ups and downs. You know, maybe the publisher doesn't want to send you on a book tour. Maybe they don't want to spend money on advertising. Maybe critics don't like it. Maybe readers don't like it. Maybe there's a holdup from the warehouse to the bookstore right. and books don't arrive on time. There are all kinds of bumps along the way. And what keeps me going forward and what keeps my spirits up is to just have this passion, a life passion, a deep heart passion for each of the books. And that's what sustains me going forward. 
I love it, Lisa. What a wonderful advice to give to people. The thousand words a day, four pages, is a is a way to show your commitment, your discipline, and then your passion is so evident in the way you speak about your books. I I love it. I can't wait to read Lady Tan Circle of Women. Fascinated by it. I want to mention to people, find it at your local bookstore and go to lisac.com so you can not only see the book, but also get the behind the scenes and step inside. Lisa, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your journey and your advice to our audience or with our audience. Thank you. And thank you, Renee, for being such an inspiration to uh, women. Your work is just so important, and I'm so grateful to it. I'm happy to be able to talk with you. A great way to to think of other ways of bringing extraordinary women to light. We tried to do that with the Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. Thank you for listening. This uh, story will be, uh, this interview will be covered as a podcast. Also, you can find it on FrazierCommunications.com, the Renee Frazier Radio Show. Thank you for listening. Have a great week ahead. And if you're a writer, let me know. I'm interested in hearing if you got inspired by Lisa C. Thank you again for listening. Have a great week ahead.